Hey, this is Jeremy Isaacs, lead pastor of Generations Church, where we want to live like it matters. For more information about our church, you can visit us at g.church. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. Thanks again for listening. Good morning, friends. It's wonderful to be with you. If you have a Bible, will you take that with me, please, and turn to the book of Psalms, chapter 19, or on your phone, either one. Psalm 19 is where we are today. Uh, It is wonderful to be home. So I've never had the opportunity to preach in this room, notwithstanding the 915 service. But uh, this is a beautiful space. This is infinitely better than where we started 10 years ago in Sequoia High School. It's 10 years this church is in January. That's incredible. Um, But yeah, I used to lead worship in front of like Hello Dolly sets from Sequoia. I led worship when there was no power. I led worship when there was no air conditioning, when the truck hadn't shown up. This is just infinitely better that the lights are on already. So um, it's wonderful to be here. Um, I have tremendous love and respect for Jeremy and Corey. Um, Jeremy has played an invaluable role in my own ministerial development and life. Um, I came to Pastor Jeremy when he was student ministries director, and I was a senior in college. And he told me this, I had totally forgotten about this, but he told me this a couple months ago, that I came to him and I said, listen, I know I love the Bible because I was studying Bible and theology in school. I said, I know I love the Bible, but I'm not sure I love people. <laughs> Does anybody relate to that? Where are my introverts at in the room? Yeah? Yeah, we got an applauder in the back. <laughs> I love God, but you, not so much, right? Uh, yeah, so I'm highly introverted by kind of nature. And so um, he took me under his wing and he gave me opportunities to speak and to lead and to preach. And he has been a voice of wisdom and encouragement and uh, formation and all kinds of things in my life. So I love them very, very much, and I hope you express your love to them as well. You have incredible pastors here at Generations Church. Uh, We are in the Psalms. This is week four, I believe, of a summer in the Psalms. The Psalms are are uh, very important for spiritual formation, um, as Pastor Jeremy said just a couple of weeks ago. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great 20th century theologian, eventual martyr under the Nazi regime, was one who prayed the Psalms daily in his life. And he speaks about the Psalms. He says, in the Psalms, we find a school for how to pray, that the Psalms teach us what it means to talk to God. Um, So he says, first and foremost, what we learn in the Psalms is we learn to pray them in the name of Jesus. That Jesus is one who not only prayed the Psalms in his earthly ministry, prayed them as one who worshiped in the temple, prayed them as one who worshiped in the synagogues, but also he is one who continues to pray the Psalms in the present tense as one who intercedes for us on God's behalf. And therefore, part of that intercession as he is the incarnate word is that he prays these prayers with us and for us. And so when we pray the Psalms, don't just read them, but when we pray them, place them upon our lips, we can almost hear, overhear, Jesus praying them with us. He's teaching us how to pray. What a grace that God would say, listen, I know you struggle to talk to me, so let me give you 150 ways to do so. The Psalms prevent us from ever saying to God, I don't know what to pray. I, I'm going to show my cards here for a moment, I personally struggle with prayer. Anybody else struggle with prayer in the room? Where are my sinners? Come on, be honest. That's all right. It's all right. Yeah, so prayer, I've been told since I was a kid, and this is right, this is good. It's just talking to God. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, just bring it to God and talk to Him. That's good. Problem is, I often don't know what to say, and sometimes the silence can be deafening. Bonhoeffer says that we often pray according to our mood, according to our emotions. Whether I feel like it or not, I pray. And he says we need a firm discipline for prayer. Otherwise, we're just kind of going about a life with God without without ever talking or listening to God. 
God. And so part of the way that we often make prayer easier is we turn it into poetry. So when you're a kid in church, you learn prayers like this one. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our what? Food, but it doesn't rhyme, does it? It should be hood or wood or something else because food and good don't rhyme. Yeah, there's another one that's quite popular for children. Um, Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord. Does anyone know this one? My soul to take. That's right. My grandmother, my mom's mother taught me that prayer when I was a child. And I thought, oh my gosh, mamaw's going to die tonight. Like <laughs> This is the night. It's a very dark prayer, isn't it? I might not make it through the night. So God, here, here I come, right? Um, yeah, so the poetry helps us. It gives us words when we don't have words. Martin Luther said that the Psalms are kind of like a little Bible. That everything that you need to know about God and a life with God is found in these 150 chapters. So you don't have time to read all 66 books. They're long, right? So just read the Cliff's Notes. What are the Cliff's Notes? The Psalms. You can even see the ministry, in the, king, the ministry of Jesus in the kingdom of God there, especially. And then John Calvin, another great reformer, said that in the Psalms we see an anatomy of all parts of the soul. So in the Psalms, all of the the full range of human experience is brought to bear in the presence of God. No matter what you are experiencing, there's a Psalm for that, right? So are you grateful and happy? Do you feel like worshiping God? There's several Psalms for that. Are you lonely? Are you afraid? Are you being pursued? There's Psalms for that. Are you angry? There's a Psalm for that. Do you feel surrounded by loved ones? There's a Psalm for that, Psalm 133. Do you feel God forsaken and alone? There's a psalm for that. Psalm 22 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the psalms bring us into deep communion with God. We often talk to God in our, prayers, in our prayer lives like we're dating God. Very courteous and respectful. The psalms talk to God like they're married to God. They take God seriously and they don't let God off the hook for the pain that we experience. And the psalm that we have before us today, Psalm 19, is a particularly formative prayer. It's instructive. It's a wisdom psalm, a lot like Psalm 1, which you looked at a couple weeks ago. Um, It's a majestic psalm. It's one that's been analyzed across the tradition by many generations. We could not do it justice in 30 minutes, but we're going to try. And in this psalm, it's my prayer that we can begin to see the world through the lens of this poet. And he's not just inviting us to see some truths about God, but he's inviting us to see the world and ourselves and God anew. And there's three particular invitations because the psalm falls out in three parts. Verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12, verses 13 and 14. And there's three small invitations, very simple invitations that I would like for us to see together. So we're going to walk through the psalm together over the next few moments. And the very first invitation that the psalmist gives us is he gives us an invitation to be present An invitation to be present, to be right where we are and to pay attention. The psalmist begins in verse 1 with this language. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And the firmament, fancy word, means dome. They imagined, because they didn't, you know, Copernicus hadn't been around yet, but they imagined that the world above the earth was this giant dome that was holding back waters. Why do you think that? Well, if you go out to the ocean, what color is the ocean? Blue, most of the time, depends on what beach you're at, we get it. But um, blue, and if you look at the sky, what color is the sky? 
oh, there must be water up there as well. So God has built this dome to keep the waters from falling in on our heads. So this is where God has placed the sun, moon, and stars is in that dome. So uh, the firmament proclaims God's handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There's no speech nor are their words. So they're not, the psalmist doesn't think they're actually talking, right? Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The psalmist starts by telling us about a world in which the skies are talking to us. He uses four separate verbs in the Hebrew, which is to describe the diversity and the complexity of their discourse. The first is that we're told, that the skies are enumerating, quite literally in the Hebrew, enumerating the glory of God, which is to say that they're not just sputtering and stammering, saying these random words about God's glory, but they're enumerating the glory of God. What's the glory of God? The essence and the character and the being of God. So as to say that they're not just saying the same thing over and over again, but they're enumerating infinitely the great depths and wonder of God's glory. They're enumerating for us God's being. Then the second verb is that they are telling us about his handiwork. The verb telling implies that there is a recipient of that speech. They're not just talking for the sake of talking. They're talking to something or somebody. They're talking to us, and they're describing, secondly, not just the character of God, but now the handiwork of God, what God has done. What has God done? Well, they're telling us about the created world. They're telling us about Abram. They're telling us about the call of Israel. They're telling us about the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. They're telling us about the prophets and the ministry of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. They're telling us about the birth of the church, all the intervening generations. They're telling us even what they've seen God do in your family. They've seen it all, and so they can give us a great conversation or discourse about all that they have witnessed. The third verb is that they are, let me check, indeed pouring forth speech. So it's not just a little bit of words, but instead it is overflowing day to day, overflowing with speech. And the final verb is that they are giving us knowledge. This verb is a verb often used in wisdom literature, Proverbs and Job, to describe teachers, wise teachers. They're not just talking, but they're giving us lectures on the glory of God. Lectures that have been going on for billions of years and that will continue billions of years after we are gone. Dear friends, we are quite late to class. The skies have been talking for quite a while. They're not just talking here and there, but how often? Day to day and night to night. There's not a moment you step outside that the skies aren't talking about the glory of God. When you let that blasted dog out at two o'clock in the morning, the skies are talking to you. When you walk to your car from the front door to go to work, the skies are talking. When you're mowing the grass in 99 degree heat, cursing your existence, dear friends, the skies are still telling you about the glory and the goodness of God. The question is, Are we listening or are we too busy to hear their lectures? He keeps going. The second half of verse 4 says this. In the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun. So the sun has his nice little house in the sky, which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit is to the end of them, and nothing is hid from its heat. So it's not just that the skies are talking, but God has created every... 
illuminating being, every sun, moon, and star, right? All of these things so as to play their role with joy. So the sun is imagined not just as one who wakes up in the morning, he's like, all right, I got to illuminate the world again. Here we go, right? Instead, he's happy. He leaves his house like a groom leaves the honeymoon suite, which is to say he's happy, y'all. So he leaves and he runs across the sky. His, His course is imagined as a runner that runs its course. And he reaches the end and he's played his part with great strength and great joy. And as he plays his part, we're told that nothing escapes the heat of the sun. Now, of course, that's true scientifically and in our experience, but in the ancient Near East, suns were often imagined to be the gods of justice. Why? Injustice takes place in the dark, right? Scary things take place when it's night out. But when the sun comes out, so does God's justice So nothing escapes the heat or the light or the justice of God as the sun moves across the sky. So it's not just that the skies are talking, but it's a happy world. Dear friends, you were not born into some cold, indifferent reality. You were born into a pep rally. You were born into a carnival into a party in which every created being plays its part with the utmost joy and with the utmost strength. The question is, are we present to hear it? Are we listening? See, the worship songs have been going on for generations prior. They'll continue generations after. We're just a footnote in that whole song, but what a glorious world to be a footnote in. Amen? So you want a worship service on a Tuesday afternoon. No need to turn on TBN. Nothing wrong with TBN. Nothing wrong with any of that. No need to gather around friends, although that's all wonderful and good. You want a worship service on Tuesday afternoon. Just step outside. They're singing. Has your life joined in that song? What a tragedy it would be if you were to spend all your days and reach the end of them and not heard the lectures and the songs of the skies. Be present on this day. Don't wait for tomorrow. This day. Listen to the skies. They're telling you about God. The first invitation is to be present. The second invitation is to be obedient. To be obedient. So the psalmist shifts in verse 7 from talking about God's revelation in nature, what's often called general revelation, natural revelation, to God's revelation in Scripture, what's often called special revelation. And what's wonderful is as he gets more specific, as God's revelation gets more specific in his word, so also the language of the psalm becomes more specific. We're not told God's name in the first six verses. We're just told about God. But God has a name. God reveals that name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, and that name is Yahweh. I am that I am, if you know that story. But we're not told that name in the psalm until he begins to talk about the word of God that gives us that name that is the law of the Lord. So look at this with me. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now when you see capital L, capital O, R, and D, this is describing God's name, Yahweh. The law of Yahweh, the law of the Lord, is perfect. That word perfect does not mean static, boring, unattainable standard. It instead refers to something that is complete and lacking nothing. What you want your life to be is what the law of the Lord is. There's no blemishes, there's no fragments. Everything is put together as it should be. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's reviving the soul. 
The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. So it's reviving the soul. This is the same language used in what we saw last week with Psalm 23. He restores my soul. Soul is not just the inmost parts of me. It's nephesh in Hebrew, and it means the total being, that God restores life to my entire being. It's kind of a resurrection principle, a restoration Principle And the psalmist is showing us what true obedience actually entails. Many of us have negative perceptions of obedience, I myself included. We want to be obedient, we try to be obedient, but in reality, obedience is difficult. It becomes a task, right? So now the psalmist is changing our understanding such that obedience is now no longer an obligation, but now becomes an opportunity for restoration. That it's no longer a task, but now a means of transformation. That it's no longer just a standard that I'm trying to keep, but is instead the very salvation that I'm seeking. Many of us in the room, I know this, in a room of this, of this many people, many of us in the room are seeking something from God. We want comfort. We want provision. We want restoration. We want relationship. We want something. We're in the room seeking something from God. And it's often the case that God, of course, grants us these things as we seek them from God. But oftentimes in God's world, sometimes what we're seeking from the hand of God can only be found on the other side of obedience. That is to say that we're waiting for something from God and then we'll take the step of obedience when in reality it's only as I take the step of obedience that I start to find the healing, the restoration, the resurrection, the life that I am looking for. We have bad notions of, of, of uh, obedience that I think are tied to kind of like raising children or training dogs. Anybody have a dog in the room? Where are my dog lovers at? Okay, good. Yeah, so I've got, we've got a dog too. Her name is Macy. She's some little mutt that we found. She was cheap, and I didn't want to pray, pay for a purebred, so we got her, and she's the best dog in the world. Any mutt? Any rescuers? Any dog rescuers? Yeah, okay, so we have a rescue too. All right, so if you've ever tried dog training before, we're not any good at it. Our dog's a nightmare sometimes, but she knows how to sit. That's all she knows how to do. Um, and when I'm training her to sit, I say that word, she sits her bottom on the ground, and only after she has sat her bottom on the ground do I give her the treat. Are you with me? Reinforces good behavior. But there's no intrinsic relationship between her sitting down and me giving her a treat. That is to say, if she's out in the yard by herself and sits down, no treats fall from the sky to feed her. It only comes from my hand. So also, I think we have similar notions of the way that God interacts with us. God wants you to give some money. God wants you to serve. God wants you to be nice. God wants you to be kind to that coworker that drives you crazy. Whatever the list is of obedience that we have, we know that, okay, God, I don't want to do it, but if I do it, I know at the end of it is some kind of heavenly cookie. And the cookie is arbitrarily related to the act of obedience, okay? Because I was nice to you, I find a little extra cash in the bank account next week, right? It's, it's randomly related. It's almost like a karma principle we often think obedience to be. But the psalmist is leading us away from that notion of obedience. Instead, he's showing us that rather than I obey so that I might get a reward, he's showing us that the reward is obedience itself. That obedience is not a means to an end, but is itself 
the end. Why? Because in obedience, I'm being formed into the image of Christ, which is as I was designed to live. And in obedience, I'm brought into communion with God. There are no greater rewards than Christ-likeness in communion with God. That's why we signed up for this gig in the first place, dear friends. It wasn't just for a few extra blessings here and there. So in obedience, I am brought into conformity into the image of Christ. And that itself is the reward. Here's the problem. Obedience feels like death at first, doesn't it? If it didn't, you would have already been obedient. So obedience feels like death. Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus Christ was obedient unto what? Death, even death on a cross, we're told, right? So it feels like death. When I say yes to whatever God is asking me to do, small or big, I'm stepping up onto a cross, but inevitably within the seeds of crucifixion come what? Therefore, God gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth, under the earth, etc., etc., right? So as a result of Christ's crucifixion, he is receiving the gift of resurrection. So as we step into the deathful feeling of obedience, we have the guaranteed promise of resurrection life as a result. Obedience is itself a gift. 2 Kings 5 tells us the story about a man named Naaman. Naaman was the commander of the Aramean armies. He was second in command only to the king. He was very successful in warfare. God had given him success. He had a big house. He had a loving family. He had power. He had wealth. He had everything you would ever want in this life, except there was one problem. Naaman had leprosy, a skin disease, which rendered him unclean. It wasn't just unhealthy, but it rendered him unclean. It presented social problems for him, etc. And he was trying everything in the world to receive healing. He tried everything he could try. He went to the doctors. He went to the specialists. He tried essential oils. The lavender didn't work. It should work, but it doesn't, right? All right. Some of you I'm offending already, and that's all right. That's all right. So he tries the lavender. The lavender is not working. But it turns out that the Aramean raids, one time when the Arameans were fighting the Israelites, they had taken some of their women as captive. And one of the young girls, one of the young Israelite girls, had come to serve in the home of Naaman to serve his wife. And she gets wind of of, uh, Naaman's illness, and so she tells his wife, you know, listen, there's a prophet back in Samaria that if he could just go to him, he'll heal him. So Naaman hears of this and asks his own king, the king of Aram, that he might return, go to Israel, go to Samaria, and find this prophet. And so the king of Aram gives him a letter and gives him tens of thousands of pounds in gold and silver. So he gives him a recommendation letter, and they load up the royal caravan with the tinted windows and the limousines and the Humvees, and they make their way all the way to Samaria and pull up on the front lawn of the king. When they walk into the king's throne room, they present this letter that says that Naaman is there to receive healing, and the king of Israel freaks out because he's not a healer. And he's thinking, if I can't heal this guy, this guy's going to attack us again, and we're going to lose in battle. So he rends his garments, and he's terrified. Well, the prophet, a man by the name of Elisha, hears that the the king is freaking out, and Elisha's like, what an idiot. You're not supposed to heal him. I am, right? So send him out to me. So they load up the caravan again, get in the limousines and the Humvees, and they make their way with the blaring sirens all the way to Elisha's house. I imagine it's some little podunk cabin in the middle of nowhere. I don't know. They pull up onto Elisha's front lawn, and here's the deal. Elisha's not impressed. So Elisha stays in his house and sends his servant out to greet Naaman, this great, powerful commander. So when he reaches Naaman, the servant tells him, listen, Elisha says, all you need to do is go down to the Jordan River, bathe yourself seven times, and you'll be healed and made clean. And Naaman is in 
infuriated. One, do you not know who I am? I'm second in command in Aram. You come out here and you talk to me yourself. Here's what you're supposed to do. Elisha's supposed to come out here and he's supposed to pray to God and wave his hand over the, the, six, the, the sick places and as a result, I'll be healed. That's what's supposed to happen. I have all kind of rivers back in Damascus that I can bathe in. I'm not going to that dirty Jordan River. He's infuriated and he's mad like a child. So he loads up in the caravan one more time. They start driving home. But his servants begin to speak to him and they say to him this, Naaman, if God, if the prophet had asked you to do something difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So then why won't you do the small thing of going down to the river and bathing seven times? Many of us in the room, we think that we would be willing to do the difficult thing for God. We're willing to be martyrs for God, but we're often not willing to do the small things for God. I tell my students all the time, we're willing to be martyrs for Jesus. We'll go to Uganda for Jesus, but we won't go to the library for Jesus, you know? Yeah, the difficult things. That sounds, that's got some drama to it. The small things don't. And so Naaman, he concedes. So they make their way to the Jordan River. He's looking at it with great skepticism. He thinks this whole thing is just stupid. Goes down into the river, goes all the way under the water, comes out one time, steps out. Guess what? Nothing happens. Does it a second time? Nothing happens. I can imagine by the third or fourth time, as nothing happens, he's thinking, this is a load of garbage. I've been fooled by this Israelite prophet. Sixth time, seventh time into the water, and he comes out and looks down at his arms, and they've been completely restored and completely healed. It says, like the flesh of a child. Psalm 103 says he, re- he renews our youth like that of the eagles. The word that describes the healing of his flesh is the same word that's used by the psalmist to describe the, the uh, resurrection or the restoration of the soul. So in the act of obedience itself, Naaman, as he is willing to subject himself to the small acts of obedience, finds the healing that he has desired for such a long time. I know God is asking you to do something. I don't know what it is, but I know that God has been whispering it to you for some time. It could have started this morning. It could have started 10 years ago. But it's something God has asked you to do that you've been avoiding for a long time because it's going to feel like death. Whatever that serving opportunity, that check, that word, that apology, that text message, that note, whatever it is, you know exactly what it is because the Spirit's been whispering it to you for some time. The resurrection that you seek from God could be on the other side of that small act of obedience. Amen? You with me? All right, so the psalmist is going to unpack for us more of what this obedience looks like. Second half of verse 7 says this, The decrees of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are upright. So notice every new verb is using a different, every new line is using a different word to describe the law of God, to show its depth and complexity. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Where's the last time we saw joy in the psalm? Exactly, Mr. Son. He's so excited. So as I obey the law, I'm brought into the exact same joy and wonder that the Son experiences every morning. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is clear, 
enlightening the eyes. This is important, that when God speaks to us an act that we are supposed to do or not to do, it is going to be clear that obedience is not for the erudite, it's not for the scholarly, it's not for the wise beyond their years, it's for everyone, all the way down to the child. Um, Hebrew scholars have talked about God's language in the Ten Commandments, you know the Ten Commandments, right? The Hebrew in the Ten Commandments is very, very simple, almost like you would talk to a three-year-old or a four-year-old. So, for example, the sixth commandment doesn't, thou shalt not murder, is what it says in the King James, I believe. But in the Hebrew, it's you no kill. And then it's you no commit adultery, you no steal, you no bear false witness, you no lie, right? These kinds of things. As is to say, it's God condescending to us because the commandments of the Lord are clear. God is not a God of confusion, of gray areas. You'll know exactly when God is speaking. One, because you can't avoid it. And two, the more you do, you're miserable. (laughs) And three, it's clear that God, the commandments of the Lord are clear and they enlighten our eyes. As we say yes, we know exactly where we're going. Verse 9, the fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. So the thing about us that endures into the life to come is the fear of the Lord. Everything else recedes. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So then the psalmist stops and exclaims in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So greater than any amount you can have in the bank account and sweeter than any dish you've ever put in your mouth is the law of God as we live according to it, as we meditate upon it, as we reflect upon it, etc. You know, the summer is a good time to slow down. It's a good time to relax. It's a good time to kind of reflect upon things, get lazy, all that kind of stuff. But the psalmist is showing us that in our affections, in our desires, we can begin to see indications of our spiritual health. What do you desire this morning? What do you want? Because our wants are often a sign of our spiritual health. The more we are formed in the image of Christ, the more we want Christ-like things. So pay attention to your wants this summer. They'll tell you, are they leading you toward God or away from it? What kind of work does God need to do within us to reorient those desires? The psalmist concludes this section in verse 11 by saying this. Moreover, by your commands is your servant warned. In keeping these commands, there is great reward. So the God, God has engineered the universe in such a way that obedience leads to our greatest fulfillment, even though it feels like it is killing us. So the invitation to be present, to hear the discourse of the skies, and to reflect upon what it means to be a person that inhabits that kind of world. Then we get the invitation to be obedient and to find that as we are obedient to the law of God and reflect upon it, we find life. And then finally, the final three verses of the psalm invite us to be open, to be available, to be listening. This is what the psalmist says. Verse 12. But who can detect their errors? Clear me from hidden faults, O God. Keep back your servant also from the insolent. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. What is the psalmist saying? The psalmist is afraid he's going to miss out on the wonder and the beauty and the life of obedience. And so he says, 
God, find the things in me that I don't even know that I have that would keep me from living in accordance with your word. The things I'm not even aware of. Heal those things, which is to say the psalmist knows that he cannot be obedient on his own, but he needs God to do the work. So if I leave the room today and I go, all right, I'm going to be obedient, I've probably already failed because that's only going to last a couple of hours or maybe a couple of days. But if I leave the room and say, God, make me obedient, I'm listening and I'm available, that's when God begins to bring our heart into communion with him and into communion with the world that he has created. So the psalmist ends with a very famous verse, Psalm 19:14. In light of all these things, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable, pleasing to you. The same word used to describe sacrifices in the Old Testament. Be pleasing to you, O Lord, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. So the psalmist is asking God, I see the heavens and I see your law. Calibrate me, align me, center me in your world and in your word. The word that's used to describe what the psalmist says his own words. It sounds odd to say that. But the Hebrew word for words in in verse 14 is the same word used to describe the words of the skies. So the psalmist says, make my words like their words. If they're teaching about your word, let me teach about your word. If they're praising you, then let me praise you. If they're worshiping you, let let me also worship you. Make my words like their words. And then he says, the meditations of my heart, heart, they thought you thought with your heart in the ancient Near East. They didn't know what your brain was good for. They thought it was just a piece of meat in your head, right? So they thought that you thought with your heart. So the meditations of my heart or of my mind, the word for meditations implies a kind of whispering. It's used to describe the cooing of a dove in the Old Testament or the growling of a lion. That is to say the whispers of your mind, not just your thoughts, but the thoughts behind the thoughts, May those thoughts themselves also align perfectly with your will and with your way. May they please you because the God of the universe and the God of the law has now become what to the psalmist? My strength and my redeemer. Okay, God, you're my God, not just the God, you're now my God. So make me like the world filled with joy, wonder, strength, and life. Align me with your word. So this week, Pay attention. The skies are talking to you about the glory of God. Pay attention to the law of God. It's very clear, and there are things God is asking you to do, not because God wants you to die upon a cross, but instead because God wants to raise you to new life. And there are things we're waiting on from the hand of God that can only come on the other side of a yes to him. And then also be open. Recognize that we cannot be obedient on our own, but instead we are only obedient as the Spirit gives us the ability to do so. God, we're open and I'm available. Align me with your world and with your word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are in so many ways out of alignment. We're busy. We're overwhelmed. We're preoccupied. And so we fail to take in the beauty and the glory of your world that preaches to us every moment of every day concerning your goodness and your gladness and your glory. And so, God, we ask that you would open up our ears to hear them, that by their speech we might learn of you. Forgive us for assuming worship was something that only took place once a week and open us up to see the worship that takes place even as we sleep. 
God, to those in the room that are struggling to say yes to you, to the things you've called them to do. Grant them strength today. May they be assured that as they say yes and take the leap of faith that you are there to catch them and to bring them to new life. And God, forgive all faults, especially the hidden ones. May the words of our mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you this week, this day, this hour. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening. If today's message was an encouragement to you, we invite you to share it with your friends and family. Maybe subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. It just helps us spread the word about what God's doing here at Generations Church. For more information about the church, visit us at g.church. Have a great day, and God bless.